morning, Cornerstone. Uh, my name is Matthew, and I'll be doing the scripture reading for today, which comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. And I'll be reading from the NIV version. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came to James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Didn't hear anything. Good morning. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And there you are. Yeah. Well, we continue in our series in Galatians, where this message here in Galatians just emphasizes in so many ways the true freedom we have in Christ Jesus and his gospel message, the good news. Question to you all. Um, how many of you here cook regularly for yourself or for your family? Okay, a few of you. Now, how many of you use recipe or just, uh, actually, let me ask, how many of you don't use a recipe? You just kind of do it on your own thinking? Oh, okay. <laughs> some of you kind of, some, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Well, I'm not a cook. Uh, you can ask my wife about that, and... But if you give me a written recipe, like uh, something to follow, and it's pretty simple, it can't be complex, uh, I, I can produce what the recipe calls for, usually. Um, but if you take that recipe away from me, I'm lost. I don't have any confidence in common sense about cooking. Um, even with things that I've cooked before, multiple times, if it's somewhat like takes more than two or three steps, I need the recipe. I, I cannot follow, I cannot just do it on my own. I, I'm not at that point. But my wife, May, on the other hand, she's different. She's a good cook. And she continues to get better because she is the type of person that might look at a recipe, but then it's just there for like an inception of an idea. And then she just goes off and kind of uh, works in her own uh, creativity and, and, and imagination of that. 
and creates some really good food. Um, the only unfortunate thing about this approach, if you, those of you who do this, is uh, when she cooks something that tastes really good, um, we better enjoy it because it's never going to be exactly the same as it is then because she doesn't quite remember what she did uh, the next time she comes around to do it. And so it's sometimes even better, but sometimes we taste it and we go, oh, yeah, it's not as good as the last time. It's still good, but it's just, you know, we're missing the last time we experienced that, that greatness of that, the taste of that food. So, you know, it's our spiritual lives, the reason why I'm bringing this up, our spiritual lives are similar to cooking in this way of without following a recipe. If we approach our spiritual lives like by our own efforts and our own imagination and creativity, trying to strive for an outcome that we hope for and want to achieve just based on our own efforts, our own imaginations, then we're never really going to actually get to what we hope for. We're never going to be able to achieve that. But on the other hand, doing, not doing things our own way, but if we solely just follow God's, we could say, way or recipe that he has provided us, and we keep to that, then we're definitely going to have and achieve the abundant life or be given the abundant life and the eternal life that God has in store for all of us here for those who follow Christ Jesus in faith. And we see this again in our text today in Genesis, or Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21 that Matt just read for us. So let's review a little bit of what we learned so far in Galatians. Uh, you know, repetition is the best teacher. It kind of grades, embeds it into our minds. So the author of this letter is the Apostle Paul, and he's written to these churches, these Christians in the Roman province of Galatia, which is in current-day Turkey. There's a map to show you where Galatia was about in that time period. And the, the word apostle for the Apostle Paul just simply means uh, someone who's called by Jesus Christ, given authority for a specific task. And so Paul was called by Christ to go and preach the gospel, and that's how he planted these churches in this area of the world, Galatia at that time. And then Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia because of these, this confusion that was happening among them, uh, being led astray by this group of people that he refers to in our text today as the circumcision group. And, and he, in chapter 1, he starts off the letter, if you remember, by saying they, the Galatians, he like berates them, saying, how do you so quickly fall away from the, the gospel truth that I originally preached to you? They were falling away from God because they were being led astray by these people, the, the circumcision group. But then he goes on to say how he is an apostle, and he stresses that uh, with them, and how he, Jesus revealed himself to him specifically and how that changed his life and he was called specifically to preach to the Gentiles. Then chapter 2, last week we saw that he went and tried to get affirmation and confirmation after a long time of doing this, preaching to the Gentiles, from Peter, James, and John, uh, the pillars of the church at that time. And they gave him the right hand of fellowship. The, they affirmed, yeah, this is a ministry that is for the Gentiles just as much as it is for the Jews, which brings us to today's text. So our text today brings up the question of whether our lives really display, as I'll put it, gospel in action or the gospel in action. Now, think about this, what we just heard read. It must have been a really awkward moment uh, in the, if, if 
we were there at that time. Maybe we've been in a place where a fight breaks out in the church community. Awkward, you know, in the sense where people are starting to argue about something. And, and on top of that, it was during a church potluck, it seems. They were eating together. And, you know, potlucks are supposed to be a nice time, good time, positive time together. But here we see not only was there a fight that breaks out, but it was between leaders in the church. Actually, two apostles, Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul. They're doing a face-to-face showdown right there, the church potluck. And completely unexpected. And these two men had been friends ever since they had met and spent some time together in Jerusalem, which we learned about earlier. Uh, and, and the last time they were together, that, we, as far as we know, Peter gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. And so here it is. And verses 11 through 14 describe this conflict. And Cephas is just another name for Peter. So let's look at these verses again. Uh, yeah, there we go. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision Jews. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that they, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, who was Paul's companion, uh, was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all, and we'll stop there. So to understand why Paul was so upset at this point with Peter, it helps us to understand a few things about the eating habits uh, at that time. Now, eating is a very cultural event. You see, in a sense, what we eat and who we eat with speaks a lot about who we are as a people. And this was especially true of the Jews at that time and continues to be today in some Jewish groups, especially Orthodox Jews. Keeping the Old Testament food laws uh, with respect to what is clean and unclean and those things um, was one way for the Jews to show that they belonged to God. They were the chosen ones, the chosen people. And mealtimes for Jews were very sacred, therefore. And do you remember how much Jesus was criticized by Jewish religious leaders for eating with those sinners and tax collectors? See, that gives you more understanding of why he was so criticized for that. See, table fellowship with Gentiles had always been forbidden with, among the Jews. And so how could Jewish Christians then keep kosher if they had to eat with Gentiles who ate the wrong food and who prepared them totally the wrong way. And so there are four things that we see that Paul points out here in these verses that Peter and these others were doing that were wrong. And Paul's very clear about this, and I'm just going to go through them. So the first thing here is that they were wrongly motivated. Paul brings this out in verse 12. He says, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision Jews. Peter was motivated by fear he had for people, especially these people that were among this group called the circumcision group. At least Paul labeled them that way. And his behavior was in contradiction to the truth of the gospel. And he lacked the courage of his convictions. And so the question then needs to come to us is, 
how often do you and I act in a way that is in conflict with what we say we believe in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because we fear what others may think. In that sense, then we are exactly like Peter and what he's being uh, called out on the table by Paul. You know, uh, some years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, in the last century, uh, I was alive. Many of you were not. But there was the former Soviet Union. Hopefully you've learned about that in your history class. And there was the premier Khrushchev. This meant like the, their president. And he was speaking before what was called the Supreme Soviet, which was a lot of their leaders in the country. And he was severely critical of his pre predecessor, Stalin, who did so many horrible things in their country. And while he was speaking, somebody in the audience sent up this note. And so somebody came, walked up, uh, a messenger to him and gave him the note and he read it and the note said um, what were you doing when Stalin committed all these horrible crimes and Khrushchev was angry and he said who set up this note I'll give you one minute to stand up and fess up to this note nobody moved everybody was quiet and he stood there and he waited and he tried to stare him down nobody said anything so he said, all right, I'll tell you what I was doing. I was doing exactly what you're doing right now. I said nothing because I was scared to be counted. And that's the point here is that if we don't act out on what we believe because we're too scared of what others may think. And that's what was motivating Peter at this point. And the others, they were motivated, motivated by fear. They were wrongly motivated. The second thing that Paul points out to them is that they caused others to stumble in their actions. Verse 13 points this out. It says, The others, other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that their, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray, which was a big surprise to Paul too. The other Jews and even Barnabas were joining Peter in what he was doing by separating from the Gentiles. Peter was concerned about upsetting the circumcision group. These other Jews and even Barnabas were probably upset, uh, concerned about upsetting Peter, this apostle, and him here he's acting this way. And when we choose to do the wrong thing, out of line with the gospel, do we realize how much it affects those around us? How it influences them when they watch what we do or what we say or how we act? And it doesn't line up with what we say we believe. You know, others may follow our poor example. Peter was leading others to act in a wrong way toward their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. So therefore, it leads us to the next point that Paul brings out, is that they were hypocritical. They were hypocritical. You know, a hypocrite is someone who holds others to a standard that they themselves do not follow. We've probably met people like that in our lives. Right? Yeah, oh, yeah, you're not supposed to do this, whatever. And then you realize that person's doing exactly what they're complaining about. Well, Peter obviously believed the gospel was by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, but failed in this specific instance to live that out. And Paul was calling him out. You see, Peter had previously agreed, no problem that the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant for everyone, especially those who are not Jewish, the Gentiles. If you remember that story in Acts when he was called by God by this vision of the sheet coming down from heaven, and which convinced him that God was saying to go to this Gentile's house, Cornelius, right? And then he went there and he preached the gospel because, and he entered the house, which is like, whoa, that's bad, you know, for Jews to do that. 
and they all came to faith and followers, became followers of Jesus. He was convinced, and then he gave Paul the right hand of fellowship later on, that yes, go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But then here, in this instance, because of his fear, he's separated from the Gentile believers, brothers and sisters, because it was like they were not good enough. Like the Jewish tradition said, they were unclean. And we needed to treat them like second-class citizens. And then fourthly, Paul points out that they denied the gospel in practice. And he says this in verse 14. He says, when I saw that they were not or when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So Peter's offense against the gospel was in his conduct, not in his teaching, because we even have letters in the New Testament from Peter, and it's right on, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But here, in this point, he was not following the gospel in his conduct. And this is what I call, as the title, Gospel in Action meaning that the gospel is not being acted on. There's no action based on the gospel truth. And this is a warning for us today as God's church. Our behavior can undermine what we say we believe. Because that's actually, at that moment, what we believe. What we act out is really what we believe at that moment. Because that's what we're acting out. And... It is possible for us Christians to believe in the gospel with our minds, maybe even state it with our mouth, but deny it with our lives and the way we live. A tragic example of this is from the history of the Southern Presbyterian Church prior to the Civil War in in the United States. In those days, it was customary for Presbyterian elders of the church to give out tokens, like tickets, to their members of the church in order for them to say that, yes, you are, uh, you are qualified and able to take communion um, for, uh, in the church service. And they would give out these silver tokens like this. And, uh, but the, the problem was the, some of these churches in the South uh, had African slaves as well that joined the church services. But they would not give silver tokens to those African um, slaves, they would give them some lesser, you know, expensive medals. Uh, and then also they would have to wait until all the white church members took communion and then they could come and have communion as well. And in this practice, even though these elders, I'm sure, said that they knew and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in their conduct, they were denying the gospel because what God had ordained as a as a way for the church to be united and to worship him in allegiance became racial prejudice and divisive in their own church body. So let's continue in verse 14 when Paul confronts Peter. He says, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He says, why are you forcing them to live like they have to be Jews when you don't follow the same thing? And Paul pointed out this double standard that Peter was acting out in that instance. And he wouldn't let it go. Peter was a Jew who at times in his freedom, his true freedom in Christ, could eat like a Gentile, eat the foods that were not according to the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws. 
But must a Gentile believer be like a Jew to be accepted in the church, in the family of God? Of course not. No. And, and, you know, in a similar way, I was thinking, okay, in my experience, earlier in my young adult life, at least in my church experience, um, it would be something like this. Uh, I heard this question come up. Nowadays, it's probably not a big deal. But can people who smoke be a Christian? You know, be a part of the church family? Sounds kind of silly, right? But, of course they can. They, but, you know, nowadays, smoking has become more and more socially undesirable. You know, it's because, you know, it's been connected to causing cancer. And why would you do something like that? You're hurting your body and all those things, right? Your body's the temple of God. But when I was young, I heard this statement, you know, you don't smoke or chew or go with girls that do, right? And so I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I know that. It, it, but this real stigmatism that was in the church when I was young was that if those people who smoked and were part of our body of Christ, they were like not real Christians yet. You know, they're, they're like second-class Christians because, you know, they still smoke. And how can you be a Christian and smoke? And, and it was really, sounds silly now maybe, but it was really divisive in that way. And besides the fact, how many of us as followers of Jesus have so many other unhealthy habits that we still do and struggle with as we learn to follow Christ? Because transformation is a process. The circumcision group here in the text believed that Gentiles needed to adopt Jewish laws, especially for men, to be circumcised, to become like Jews, and then believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And we saw in chapter 1, Paul was very clear. If you take the gospel and you add anything to the gospel, then it's not a gospel. It's a false gospel. And that's why Paul is being so hard here on Peter. Let's continue in verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, very sarcastic there, <laughs> not those sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So before we continue, we really need to understand what this word justified means. Uh, it is the first time it appears here in the letter. And understanding this word really gives us a deep understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. So to understand the word, first let's think of how does God view people that... Uh, before they commit to him as Lord, to follow him as Lord, before they acknowledge him as Lord and worship him as Lord, how does he view them? Well, we know from the scriptures and the Bible that God views unbelieving sinners as the following, lost, guilty, spiritually dead, alienated from God, his enemies, and condemned. These are just some of the things we find in the scriptures. So knowing that, keeping that in mind, what is justification? Well, justification, this word justified, comes from the law courts. It's a legal term. And it means the exact opposite of the word condemnation. So to condemn means to declare guilty. But to justify means to declare somebody not guilty, innocent, righteous. So, so when justify appears in the scriptures, when we see that, it is referring to God's unmerited favor by which he makes a sinner right with himself. In a sense, he is accepting and treating that sinner as righteous. Now, justification is not simply forgiveness because 
a person can be forgiven, but then they can go out and sin again, and then they're guilty, right? But be justified by faith in Christ, we are declared righteous. We are no longer guilty. We cannot be guilty again. We are declared righteous once and for all. Justification is also different from being pardoned because a person who is pardoned for a crime or, or for their punishment of crime, that's really, they still have a record of their crime. They're just freed from their punishment or the rest of their punishment for that crime they committed. But being justified in Christ means that we are declared righteous, that God doesn't remember the sins that we committed anymore. It's like they're erased. He's like very forgetful, right? He, he doesn't remember what we did. God does not keep track. Psalm 103 declares this to us. He says, uh, says there, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, <clears throat> so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Now, if you're think, sitting here and you've been raised in church and you're thinking, oh, come on, this is basic stuff, Pastor Jeff. I would challenge you then, are you living as this is basic stuff? Because it's not what we intellectually know, it's what we actually live out. So here's a simple tool that helps me remember what it means to be justified. To be justified is just as if I never sinned. See, it sounds like it, right? Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Means like, God doesn't remember. <laughs> he looks at us and it's like, you're perfect, you're righteous, you're holy because of the blood of Christ that covers you. Now that we understand justification a little better, let's look again at these verses with that understanding. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is restating the truth of the gospel here. And the first truth that he's making clear is that we are not justified by observing the law. Or in other words, we're not justified by anything we can do by our, our, on our own. What does observing the law mean? Well, the law in this context is just referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Jewish law. And if people have counted how many laws there are, and there's 613 different commands that they were supposed to follow in that law. And so for people today, we could just think of maybe uh, we have this belief that we can be justified or we can earn favor with God by doing good things. You know, helping the poor, helping those in need, the orphans, the widows. You know, by doing those things, we're going to earn like good, good favors, brownie points with God. And this is a common belief. But when, if we buy into that belief, then how do we know we've done enough stuff to like outweigh our bad deeds? You know, how many good deeds do I have to do to outweigh the, my sinful deeds? And we never really know. And this kind of thinking believes that we can be justified by what we do. We just got to work harder at it. And, you know, it's, it's a lie. And if you think about it, every other major faith in the world buys into this kind of thinking in some way that we have to just try harder be a better person be less selfish whatever it is and then we'll earn some some rights to get into nirvana or be a god or whatever it is 
and this is just simply alive. You know, we have as much ability to justify ourselves as we do to be able to jump to the moon. Just try it. Try jumping to the moon. I don't think you're going to even come close. So no matter how hard we try, we never do enough to become right with God. The other truth mentioned here is we are justified by faith in Jesus as Lord. This is the basics of the gospel, right? But it's the hardest thing to live by, thinking that we are forgiven absolutely clean. Because often we don't live that way. The right way and the only way to be, to be accepted by God is by faith in Jesus. You know, A.W. Tozer correctly said, a real Christian expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, and that being Jesus, not our own. So let's continue now in verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. See, here one of the common arguments against Christianity is that justification promotes sin. That by the grace of God being declared righteous, then people are just going to sin more. Because no matter what we do, right, we're already declared righteous, so why not get away with more? Right? Have more fun because he's already forgiven us for it. But this is twisted thinking and not what the scriptures teach at all. Because justification is only made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. God gave his one and only son. And that was an unmerited act of grace, favor. We did not deserve that. And if whoever believes in him then has eternal life given and granted to them. So being justified then transforms us because God's spirit enters us and transforms us. So it gives us, in a sense, a bad taste for sin. Not a desire to try to sin more and get away with more. It changes our hearts. See, grace received brings a change of heart. The Spirit of God transforms us inside out. Let me illustrate this with a story you may have heard me use before, but it's, I love it. Uh, a father took his little daughter to a local diner for breakfast, just the two of them together, right? Daughter, father time. And they're sitting there, and the, the waitress to come and give them water and coffee was in a really bad mood that day. Uh, had a frown on her face. She was like reluctant to serve them. Every time the water or coffee ran out, you know, it was like she'd never come over. They'd have to like say, hey, you know, get her attention. And she'd grudgingly come over with a frown on her face. And then, yeah, whatever, you know, kind of leave. And then the daughter said this comment to her father and said, wow, she's grumpy. And her father said, let's see if we can change that. And so he, you know, tries to get her attention. And finally she sees him and comes over grudgingly again. And he pulls out a $100 bill, and he says, can you take, give me change for this and $10 bills? Because I want to leave one of these for you when we leave, my daughter and I leave today. And the, the lady's mouth drops open and then turns into a smile. She says, sure. You know, and she goes over and gets him the change, gives it to him. And then from that moment on until the father and daughter left, she'd go over to the table and serve the water, make sure she, they had enough coffee and did it with a smile on her face and... And then, you know, he left the $10 and he left. 
See, she, that big tip, she did not deserve because she had a horrible attitude. But because of this small act of grace, undeserved gift that she received, even despite her bad attitude and poor service, it affected her heart. It changed her. Now, you might think, well, maybe she just did it because of the money. But that didn't mean her attitude needed to change, right? No, she did, it changed her attitude as well. When God's grace, even more deeply and profoundly, when we realize what God has done for us, unmerited, when we deserve far worse, then it changes us, changes our hearts, if we truly and sincerely accept that grace, that act of grace through Jesus Christ. And a life of transformation, then, is results in the gospel in action in our lives. A changed life is not a prerequisite of justification. It is the result of justification, the act of being changed by Christ, by accepting him as Lord. Doing good things will never save us. Only when we sincerely trust in Jesus as Lord and follow him because of what he did for us, through his life and his death and his resurrection, then you and I will be changed. And that is an ongoing process. It's a, re, it's a recommitment we need to do every day to commit ourselves again to Christ because it's all that process that's happening in our hearts. So how we live out or do not live out the gospel truth is really either pointing people to Jesus by what we do or it's pointing people away from Jesus by what we do. You know, it's, it's, the question to us is, is the way we are living pointing people to Jesus or pointing people away from Jesus? If you evaluate your life, is your life gospel inaction or is your life the gospel in action? Let's pray together. Father, we fall far short of your glory. And we don't deserve the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus. We deserve the lake of fire. We deserve hell. And yet, Lord, you love us so much. You've made a way. You've given us the truth. You've revealed the truth to us. And that is in Christ Jesus, your son. And Lord, we pray that we would be transformed and continue to be transformed by being faithful to you, Lord Christ, and experience the power of what you can do on earth through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.